0: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Roar brought to you by BlueWire. I'm your host, Billy Marshall. And to join us today, very happy to be joined by uh, the S2 founder, uh, one of its founders, Brandon ally and brandon is based out of nashville tennessee and i'm sure a lot of people have um seen a lot of the discourse around s2 uh, uh but first of all brandon how are you Doing well thank you last name is Allie, ally ally brandon ally thank you and i just want to be clear off the top of the show that we are not going to discuss any particular players scores or whatever all that information is private uh i'm sure Some people have seen reports in the media. Um, That's not what we're intending to do here on this show specifically. We're just going to look into um, what is S2, um, how long it's been around, and sort of the uh, details behind the cognitive exam that has sort of taken over uh, the, you know, this NFL draft process. But uh, Brandon, um, what is your background? I I think if you want to give a quick background, I know you've played, I believe, collegiate Baseball, if I'm not mistaken. No, I
2: was a college uh, track and field athlete at the University of Tennessee in the early 90s. My uh, business partner, my co-founder, Scott Wiley, played college baseball at Point Loma University in San Diego. Um, Scott and I took very similar journeys in that we were college athletes and and trying to pursue that sport post-collegiately and both hampered by injuries. So I had an Achilles injury and was forced to... uh, to retire, hang up the spikes, and 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 quite honestly, I I went back to school simply to put off real life, and so uh, getting a PhD seemed like the longest route in which I could put put off life, and so I, I have a PhD in in neuropsychology and cognitive neuroscience, um, and so spent five years doing that, and then spent uh, another five years uh, uh, in the Boston area at Harvard Medical School and Boston University doing fellowships in cognitive neuroscience. And so, my area of expertise prior to starting s two was um, sort of visual perception, really, so how we make sense of our visual world, how we track different objects in our visual environment, um, how we how we shield out distractions, and most importantly, how we lay down visual representations for future use and so, when you think about driving or, or, or things like that, um, I was heavily involved in really early detection of Alzheimer's disease. And so using some of these tasks that could define uh, very early visual problems, um, uh, keeping track of multiple moving objects, you know, that's really important in driving, especially in in neighborhoods when children and things are are running across the street and there's stop signs or other cars pulling out and things like that. Um, And then Scott's background is kind of where mine take leaves off. So Scott uh, is an expert in motor control. So how we start, stop, switch, redirect our motor system, uh, particularly in split second environments. And he was working in in the realm of uh, detecting very early Parkinson's disease and movement disorders, Huntington's disease and things like that. And so Scott and I were both faculty members um, at Vanderbilt University in the Department of Neurology and Neurosurgery. Um, and we were, you know, just working together. We shared lab space, or we had adjoining labs, and, and we worked with a neurosurgeon who actually allowed us to do some of these tasks in the operating room with, with people with electrodes, uh, with their brains open and, and electrodes so that we could really understand the networks and the circuitry involved in things like a quick response or visual processing or visual memory and things like that, and so Uh, Just given our athletic backgrounds, we always spend our free time after work going to get a beer or whatever, just talking about what the brain has to do to hit 95 miles an hour or play quarterback. Um, And, you know, really just it it, it spawned from and this is around, I'd say, 2012, 2013, from just hearing commentary uh, like at the draft saying, hey, this athlete plays faster than his foot speed or he has a nose for the ball or uh, always seemed to be in the right place at the right time, and so we sort of giggled and was like, "You know what? We we kind of measure some of that stuff in the lab." Um, and so my strength and conditioning coach at the University of Tennessee was Tommy Moffitt and Tommy was the strength and conditioning coach at LSU at the time. And so I picked up the phone, told him what we we're up to, and that's really the birth of S two, and, and it happened at LSU. And and we test everything, every every piece of of data we got out there is is well vetted and, ted- and tested. Uh, uh, through LSU and other high-level colleges before we sort of moved that into the pro space. So that's sort of just a real basic background on my background and, and, the, and the origins of the company.
1: Awesome. And scrolling through your website, it seems like the New Orleans Saints and or Jeff Ireland's uh, leadership were the first, at least one of the early pioneers of S2. And um, listening to some of your other interviews, you know, you've mentioned that while teams You know, I'm not sure you can clear, correct me if I'm wrong, that you guys administer the test at these different all draft functions, whether it's like the all star game, the combine. um, But only half the league, two teams per division, has access to the full data, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So, and again, I don't know which two teams. Obviously, the Saints are a team you work closely with. I know you guys uh, interviewed the general manager of the Falcons last year; it was a really great interview with him, Terry Fontenot, who came comes from New Orleans. Um, and us being a Panthers podcast, uh, there's been a lot of reporting that the owner, uh, Dave Tepper, is a big believer in S2. That's sort of like the new buzzword. So, um, I'm again, I'm assuming even if they don't aren't part of you know your exclusive. Group, They still do have the data uh, from, you know, taking the exams in different settings. Uh, you know, the first thing I want to ask, though, about this exam is uh, what is the difference between this and the Wunderlich? Because everyone always brings up the Wunderlich, the Wunderlich, you know, Dan Marino's, you know, history, if you remember, didn't score well. Donovan, now I think Lamar Jackson didn't have a high score. Right. You know, what are like the main differences that differentiate this cognitive exam from the Wonder
2: yeah. And this is a fundamental aspect of S2. And, and we actually have a blog on it on our website uh, entitled What is Athlete IQ? So the wonderlick and a lot of, I would say 99% of the other measures out there purporting to um, measure cognition or, um, or, or 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 decision-making do fall in that bucket of general intellect. And so they may take from classic IQ tests, and they may pull out a few of those tests because they feel like they're relevant in sport. And while that is really important in some respects, so to be able to understand complex schemes, complex concepts associated with offenses and defense, the, your ability to learn new information, right? So your basic intellect and IQ does have some correlation with your, your ability to learn, especially complex things. We took the approach where we, we we thought that scouts in front offices were doing a great job. Like you didn't need the wonderlick. You could talk to a college program and you could talk to, you can interview an athlete to get a sense for how do they handle con- concept, uh, complex concepts, complex schemes or things like that. And I think that we could all sit around and talk about individuals that we know that have really high football smarts. They can tell you situationally what's supposed to happen but when they get on the field and the ball is snapped, the game changes, right? It doesn't matter if you know the rules, you've got to be able to execute the rules and not only execute them, you've got to execute them at the NFL level in less than a second or less than a half a second. And that's the separator. That's what S2 measures. So while those other tools may be valuable, uh, and, and I'm not going to you know sort of throw them under the bus, I think there's some value in understanding the capacity for your athlete to learn complex things. Your ability to execute is critical. So we, you know, we have a test called decision complexity, and it really gets after where you're required to respond in less than half a second, filtering through some if-then rules. And what I mean by if-then rules, again, this is a very simplistic, I'm not trying to offend football aficionados, but if the, if the DB covers the flat, I'm going to throw to the curl. If he covers the curl, I'm going to throw to the flat. That's an example of an if-then statement. Well, as you climb the ladder of football, the complexity is outrageous. There's not only multiple if-thens, there's multiple positions that are that you have to filter through if-thens. So even the guys who can tell you the rules very quickly, and a lot of the commentators on TV can do that very well. When the ball is snapped, if you can't execute those rules in less than half a second, it's going to manifest in hesitation, uh, potentially throwing to the wrong route. Um, or or just being really slow in your ability to process that. So the S2 evaluation measures nine different cognitive processes that require processing information or responding in less than a second, oftentimes less than half a second.
1: Yeah, and I've heard you mention that thus far in a lot of your research and just the gathering of data that QB has the strongest correlation Um, as far as like how they score, how are the scores tiered out in your system?
2: Yeah. So in our system, um, we, we, a lot of like IQ tests and things like that have arbitrary score ranges. And so you need to have context for those things. So like, uh, you know, an average IQ is a hundred, but you can be below a hundred. So what we did is we took the raw data, um for everyone and and added the raw data to a database and then created z scores based on The data. And so Z score, obviously, as you probably know, um, is, uh, the, the number of standard deviations away from the mean. And then we took those standard, this, the Z scores and converted them to percentiles. So if you hear that an athlete scored a 65, that means he scored better than 65% of all people taking that test. And for NF, our NFL database, it's about 3,600. NFL prospects. And when we say NFL prospects, it's about the 800 players or so every year that have declared for the draft. So top 3% of of players. So in, in the context of that, it's important to know that 50 is absolutely average. 50 is your average NFL prospect above that is going to be above average. Lower than that
1: is going to be um, below average. And I think one thing that I'm curious about is what are you guys identifying that helps you project to the NFL game, but it's not necessarily applying to college quarterbacking, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. So, you know, and I want to be clear here is that we do have some data up there about uh, correlations and relationships to on-field performance that those types of metrics, it's much easier in baseball, right? And in football, it's hard because a lot of it is situational where situational occurrences you don't know if an interception happened because uh, the receiver ran the wrong route or or a ball was tipped or so we do have correlations to things like passer rating and to completion percentage and 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 interception rate we understand we fully understand i'm an academic um I, i've gotten a phd and taken quite a few statistics classes that some of those are um are are, are not deep relationships. And so if we take the top 32 starting NFL quarterbacks and make some assumptions about them, you're already starting off with a small end size. So you only have 32 in your group and it's a very biased pool. You're talking about the best of the best. So it's a little bit easier to find relationships. Um, It is, it is, our relationships are found at the college level as well. But but really, we're not the people who are doing the high-level analyses. So our clubs, you know, we've been working in the NFL. This is our seventh or eighth draft now. Our clubs' analytics teams are doing the more sophisticated analyses, like with some of the, the, the fancier PFF stats about points above expected and yards above expected and those kind of things. And so we sort of rely on them to inform us, hey, this is what we're finding you should think about conceptualizing receivers in this way or writing about receivers in this way or hey here's what we're finding do you think that we might be able to add a test to the battery that gets to this specific cognitive process so we're more of a tool for our clubs and in and, and teams to use for their own benefit and to support their needs rather than us saying hey we can predict success here's what you do right i mean I joke all the time. Like we've been trying to predict human behavior since the beginning of the uh, since beginning of, the time, of time, and and we <laughs> suck at it. We are yeah. terrible at predicting human behavior. So we don't actually want to get in the game of prediction. What we want to get in the game of is one uh, evaluating a player's cognitive capacity. So what do they do? They have the capacity to process speeds at 100 miles an hour for a hitter. Do they have the capacity to process multi cue reads in a complex offense? Um, some guys can score really well, but that doesn't mean they're going to play that way all of the time, right? And you've got other buckets of performance that, that you're interested in. So if a quarterback scores at the 95th percentile on our evaluation, but he's 5'8 and can't throw more than 40 yards, there's a problem. You know, he's not going to be an NFL quarterback, no matter how many objects he can track. And on top of that, we like to be involved in the helping the athlete by, okay, and so here's a great example, all the leaks that you're seeing, and I'm not sure where they're coming from, but they're giving you one number. They're giving you the overall score, mm-hmm. which, you know, is just a general marker, but it, it is a mistake to value one number because we give nine different cognitive tests and there's a pattern of scores in there. And so just because you scored at the 90th percentile, you may be at the 10th percentile in object tracking, which means you're going to have tunnel vision, right? And so that can be problematic for a quarterback. That can be really problematic for a quarterback um, that may be facing cover two defenses a lot or your playbook requires you to have reads across the entire field. So we want to help support teams in that they can understand the pattern of results about how this athlete is cognitively wired so that they can either A, build a playbook around that to make sure the athlete succeeds, or we can help with player development, which we're involved in a lot at the college level about working with players to build some of those weaknesses to overcome them on the field. So it's more about the pattern of scores to understand really their style of play, right? So there may be a profile that fits with a man-on-man guy versus a zone guy. So you need to know that about your defensive back. So you need to know how to use them appropriately rather than saying this guy scored 90, I'm drafting him, or this guy scored 40 and I'm not drafting him.
1: Yeah, for sure. And one of my good friends, uh, Tony Wiggins, who hosts the Locked On Jaguars podcast, he said yesterday in one of his pods, he was talking about a different position. I think he was talking about a linebacker that football is a thinking man's game in certain positions. And I think that's very applicable to what um, you guys are trying to at least measure out. And at the end of the day, it's just one tool. Like you guys aren't, you know, uh, judging their 40 yard dashes or any of the other kind of metrics, their production. Um, You know, but one thing I do want to ask is, you know, I saw that you guys are uh, administering the exam at QB collective and Elite 11 as well. I don't know if Elite 11... I know you guys did a QB collective because I saw Drake May was taking... There was a picture of him taking the exam. Um, The question is, how stable are the results over time for that same player? So like, for example, if Drake May takes the exam, he's, I don't know, in in the X percentile. um, Is it possible for him to improve before he takes the exam as an NFL prospect? Yeah, great
2: question. So we... So... there's two ways to look at it. One is if Drake may takes as a 15 year old, it's probably appropriate to norm him to other, you know, 15 and 16 year olds norming him against guys that are NFL prospects is a little bit problematic. And here's why, but it's not overly problematic. So in our nine different cognitive tasks, three of them are, are visual processing. And, Each one of those visual processing skills is fairly well established by 13 to 15 years of age. And it's kind of how you're wired. So how you score on a visual task at 15 is probably not going to change much at all um, when you're 20. Some of the motor control tasks, so like your impulsivity or your ability to improvise uh, or your ability to lock in on a motor task in the face of distraction, that's governed by the frontal lobes and those aren't really fully maturated until your, your early to mid 20s so there can be some development there and what i will say is that you if if you score at the 20th percentile you're not going to be at the 80th percentile you may just see a little bit of uh, of movement we work with uh, a, a bunch of college programs as well, but, but but five programs in particular, we have really taken an initiative to do things like, let's test them when they walk in the door at 18, and then let's test them every week for three weeks, every month for three months, every year for three years, and see how much the data changes. and. When Scott and I selected these tasks, I think it's really important to note that we didn't invent any of these tasks. Scott and I didn't didn't develop any of these tasks. They've been used in laboratories around the world for decades uh, to study the brain uh, in cognitive science labs. Now we adjusted some of them to, to replicate the timing or the number of objects that are on a football field because that's critical to sort of trying to translate to uh to performance. Um but what but what we found was um, year over year, the test-retest reliability was extremely stable. The R was okay. point, point, point 0.893 for the overall test. There's a little bit more leeway on some of the individual tasks. And by the time an athlete started college to the time they exited, in most of these programs, they're there for three years because they were heading for the draft. A score changed about 5.5 percentile points. So if a guy scores at the 80th percentile as a freshman, you can kind of put your money on it. The highest he's going to end up getting is an 85-5. And that's simply just because of things like brain maturation. It could be because we tested him on a poor day. You know, everybody has bad days, overwhelmed with school or whatever. But that that's just a general sort of overall metric for test retest reliability.
1: And compounding off that, let let's say a player is taking – um, medication for like an ADHD, like do you control for that as well?
2: Yeah, great question. So we always ask our athletes to take our evaluation in the state in which they play. So if they play with medication, take it with medication. If they don't play with medication, don't take it. It's really interesting, right? So these dopaminergic agonists the, or the, the stimulant-based ADHD meds, and there are two classes now, and we haven't really studied the other class, the long latency one that's that's metabolized in the liver. I think one of them is called Vyvanse or something like that. But your your, your true Adderalls and amphetamines and stimulants, they are phenomenal at being able to improve motor control. So your ability to lock in and, and not be distracted, your ability to not be as impulsive in your motor movements, but here's the kicker is that it can hammer your visual system. So these medications are, are developed to target the, the very focused and narrow attention Well, if you need somebody to broaden their attention and see the whole field, it's working against that ability. And so we've actually worked with a number of quarterbacks at the college level to titrate their medication. So let's find the right dosage. Is it the classroom dose? Chances are it's not because you get some visual visual skills that are hammered, uh, but the motor end is improved. If it's a quarterback or a safety, you probably need that visual system really well. So we need to find maybe it's half the classroom dose, or maybe it's better you don't play on the medication. Those kinds of things. We've also done studies with marijuana. We've done studies with uh, um, head blows. And I say head blows because not concussion, but continuous blows to the head that might exceed 300 Gs over a three-week period just to look at how some of these scores move around. So this fairly well characterized. We have a lot of psychometrics on our data um, in in that we engage with our collegiate partners to collect and analyze this data. Um, But but yeah, all of those, those medications that we know are, you know, psychotropics can affect cognitive performance, uh, and, and that has to manifest on the field of play.
1: Um, you know, given the data that you've had, you know, compiling over these past seven years, even in back into college ranks as well, uh, you've mentioned that quarterback, and I think wide receiver and off-ball linebacker are some positions that uh, correlate positively. Um, what are some kind of A couple positions that you're still working on, or maybe you don't have the full picture. Is it maybe like an offensive lineman where it's kind of tough to really judge like hand placement and leverage and angles and stuff like that? Man, you
2: are right on. It's almost as if you've, uh, you've either heard me talk or heard from somebody who I talk. Yeah. I think the offensive line, the defensive line and the tight end positions are difficult. Um, And I'll tell you why for two reasons, I think. Uh, one reason, let's just, let's just take an edge rusher as an example. Um, if you can run over somebody or outrun somebody, it, it does not matter how many moving objects you can keep track of or, you know, how quickly you can locate a target. It's, it's not like a safety position. I think physical skills rule the day there. And so guys who have higher physical metrics and lower cognitive metrics are probably more successful at that position. The other thing is, I think we don't accurately or not accurately. We don't truly measure everything these guys have to do and our battery. And and this is kind of over the last eight years, our teams have pushed for us to keep the battery the same. So it's always apples against apples and they can make year over year comparisons. But as an offensive lineman, I think it's critically important to be able to judge angles and judge leverage and judge those kind of things. We have those tasks. We actually have an angle judgment task in our field goal battery uh yeah we have one in our goalie uh our soccer goalie battery and our golf battery um that that judges that um things like rhythm um, and so there's a very nice cadence to footwork and to, and to dropping back in protection uh, for linemen that we measure in other sports, but we don't measure it in line play. So I think we're a little less um, effective at those positions. And then the tight end, you know, there's only a certain number of tight ends that come out every year. And, and the tight end is a position where, wow, you can be an offensive lineman or you can be a receiver, or you can be a hybrid of both. So I think it's hard to sort of really narrow down on, Hey, what, makes a successful tight end. I mean, I think we can all say, hey, what makes a successful tight end, but from a cognitive perspective. And I think, you know, we're also now starting to build models um, with some academic analysts as well as some some football analysts to be able to put the pieces together of physical skills and cognitive skills. And look, S2 has never said this is the holy grail or cognitive is the only thing that matters. But look, if, if we could if we can take a four two guy and his decision speed is slow and say he's gonna play more like a four five guy, or take a four six guy who has outrageous cognition and plays more like a four four guy, that's extremely informative uh to teams. So that's the kind of discussion we want to be involved in, rather than, hey, we've found the next Tom Brady or we've
1: found the next, you know, Darrell Rivas. That's that's not really our game. Yeah, for sure. Um You know, as we close out here, you know, the discourse, especially on social media has been, um, I'm sure for you, very frustrating. And there's just a lot of information that uh, a lot of people don't have. And, uh, you know, again, without getting into specific scores, you know, we called out, you know, a couple individuals who were throwing PFF scores for a couple QB prospects who didn't take the exam in 2021. Um, But for you, how do you want the discourse to move forward in an appropriate, but also responsible way? Like how can we accurately talk about this without kind of getting into, um, you know, taking shots at their character or their intelligence?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what what you said right there is, is we don't measure personality. We don't measure intelligence. And so it has nothing to do with that. I also just, it's, it's, It's like I kind of alluded to earlier, I think it's really a mistake to to have a single score out there and that be meaningful. I think that people try to make interpretations and try to spin a narrative about certain quarterbacks or certain players based on one number um, or, or this guy scored low. Um, And so that means he's not going to be successful and that's just simply not true. We just want to be part of the discussion about, Hey, we can help teams inform them about how a player makes decisions or why they may make certain mental mistakes so that you can understand your tolerance for those mental mistakes or building around that player. And I think the, the negative part of all of the discourse is that, um, we can actually help some athletes match up with teams that are a great fit for them um, or set up player development plans to actually help them come up to speed at the, at the next level, a little better rather than, um, you know, and I think that pro sports as a whole has this sort of mentality about, you know, next man up kind of thing. Like, Oh, he scored poorly on this. We're let's not drafting or let's not use him or he's never going to be good or, you know, I think you've got to be in the right situation. You've got to be able to be in a place where it fits your your scheme, and you it fits. Period. Right. I mean, we've heard of plenty of players that didn't have the psychological match with some of the people their way they're playing for. Their head coach is too demanding, or this, that, and the other thing, and other oh, he's a player's coach, or you know, and so just some of those things. It's you know. These kids work super hard and they all want to be here and they all deserve a chance. So I don't want people getting into the game of, oh, well, I heard so-and-so scored low on the S2. We shouldn't draft him or he's not going to be good. Um, and and part of it, as as you alluded to, like half of the stuff I'm reading on on social media and I'm, I've decided I'm getting off um, <laughs> is just not even true. Like like you said, there was a guy saying, "Hey, in listing out all these PFF grades as S two scores," and it's like, "Oh wow,
1: you're not even remotely close." I mean, the funny um, part is, like, I thought those two quarterbacks in particular are very good at like processing too. <laughs>
2: Right. So, uh, you know, I don't know what to make of it, man. Um, And, you know, it's funny. It's like, everybody says, Oh, this new gimmicky tool or uh, we've exploded this year. We've literally been in the NFL for this is our eighth draft. Like teams have been using us for eight years. uh, Value us. We really, really value the, the, the confidence that they have in us and the trust that we have in them and vice versa. And, Uh, you know, we're not the one, obviously we're not the one leaking scores or whatever, but you know, it's, this is not new. It's just for whatever reason, just exploded in the last two weeks. And so I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to clarify some things and just talk about what we are and what we're not and how we can be useful.
1: Absolutely. And everyone that was Brandon Alley from S two, you can find them on Twitter at S two Cognition. I uh, can check out their website for a lot more transparent details into um, what they do and some of the uh, tests and on their blog as well. Just a fantastic resource. And uh, Brandon, thank you so much for joining. Really appreciate it.